If you have a Bible, would you take it and turn to Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 37. Isaiah 37 and verses 21 through the end of the chapter will be our text for today. Over the past few weeks, we have tried to understand the fear and the despair that filled the city of Jerusalem and the king of Judah, King Hezekiah, when the Assyrian army arrived outside their walls and gave them two options. Option one, surrender and be exiled. Option two, resist and be killed or exiled. Now, coming from Assyria, that was no idle threat. King Sennacherib and his war machine had already captured the major cities of Judah, including the key defensive city of Lachish, and all the attempts of Judah to make peace and avoid exile had failed. In our common phrases, we might say that they were backed into a corner or that their backs were up against the wall, or we might even envision a scene from a movie where someone is chased to the edge of a cliff and there's nowhere left to go. Biblically, we might return to the Israelites on the edge of the Red Sea with the mountains on either side of them and the Egyptians pursuing them and the Red Sea in front of them. They are hopelessly trapped and apparently doomed to destruction. Of course, for Judah, it never had to go this far. It never had to get this desperate. They didn't have to wait until they had exhausted all of their resources. No alliance with Egypt was necessary. No aqueduct of Hezekiah was required. No stripping of the gold from the temple to pay off Sennacherib was needed. As we have seen in the chapters preceding this one in our study of Isaiah, the entire time that the Assyrian threat had been hanging over Judah, Isaiah had been calling them over and over again to turn and to, to the Lord and to trust in him only. However, it was only now, only now, now that all other hopes were gone, that Hezekiah and his people finally turned and put their hope in the Lord. Sadly, it's not very hard to relate to them, is it? When faced with threats, when things are uncertain, or when crises arise, faith in general and prayer in particular are often seen, even to we who are God's children, as last resorts or at least that's practically how we treat them. We, we do everything else that we can think of first. And once we have made all of the phone calls and we've spent all of the money and we've run through all of the scenarios and we've read all of the articles and we've suffered all the sleep, sleepless nights, only then do we turn and trust the Lord alone. But sisters and brothers, we don't simply have to relate to Judah. We can also learn from them. These, these chapters can lead us to repent of our lack of faith in the past and hear the encouragement of this passage that echoes Moses' encouragement standing before the Red Sea. Do not fear, but stand firm in faith and see the salvation and glory of the Lord. That's our big idea. It probably sounds like a lot of other big ideas we've had in recent weeks, but let me say it again. Do not fear. Do not fear, that's what Isaiah says back in verse 6, but do not fear, but stand firm in faith and see the salvation and glory of the Lord. We, we can learn, we can learn from this example here in God's word in Isaiah 36 and 37, we can learn to turn to prayer and to faith first 
not as a last resort. We can learn that trusting the Lord is not wishful thinking, but it is in fact a firm foundation. We can hear the words of Hezekiah's prayer and the response of the Lord through Isaiah, and then we can watch as the Lord lifts his arm to protect and deliver his people. And with this truth wrapped around us like a belt, the next time that uncertainty or crisis arises in our lives, we can remember this call. Do not fear. Do not fear, but stand firm in faith and see the salvation and the glory of the Lord. Let's hear the, the word of the Lord from Isaiah 37, 21 through 28. The structure of these chapters, just to remind you, is found in two cycles of, of threats and mockery from Assyria, and then responses of Judah and Hezekiah, and then words from the prophet. Isaiah's first response is very brief. It's in chapter 37, verses 6 through 7. But here, in verses 21 through 35, we have a fuller response from the Lord through Isaiah the prophet, followed by this very matter-of-fact conclusion to the whole ordeal in verses 36 through 38. I asked my kids if they were excited to figure out what was going to happen, figure out what was going to happen in this situation and they were, and it's amazing what does happen, and it's also amazing how understated it is in this passage. So uh, these verses that we're going to read then contain what the Lord says through Isaiah after Hezekiah's prayer. Beginning in verse 21 of Isaiah 37, God's word says to us, Then Isaiah, the son of Amoz, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me, Concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word of the Lord. This is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your servants you have mocked the Lord, and you, Sennacherib, have said, With my many chariots I have gone up the heights to the, of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon, to cut down its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses, to come to the remotest height, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank waters to dry up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. Then the Lord says, verse 26, have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins, while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded, and have become like plants of the field, and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it is grown. I know you're sitting down, and you're going out, and coming in, and you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me, and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. And this shall be the sign for you. This year you shall eat what grows of itself, and in the second year what springs from that. Then in the third year sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city, or shoot an arrow there, 
or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same way he shall return and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And an angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. Do not fear, but stand firm in faith and see the salvation and glory of the Lord. But why? Why, why should we not fear? Why should we stand firm in faith? Why is that a firm foundation? To answer that question, let's consider the truths that we see here, the, the facts of this passage that lead us to faith, the principles of how God works in this world that we can hold on to. Despite what those who mock it might say, faith is not baseless, wishful thinking. Rather, it is, it is rooted in truths, even if those truths sometimes are not visible to our physical eyes. I don't know if you've noticed, but facts are in high demand these days, but they are also widely disputed over. We're not sure who to trust. And yet, what we find in God's word are not alternative facts or fake news or conspiracy theories or political spin. Rather, we have unchanging eternal truths that are even more reliable than following all of the science that there is. So hear these truths. And in hearing them, let fear flee. Let faith replace it. And let your heart be filled with a longing for the glory of God to fill the earth as he cares for and defends his people. Fact number one that leads us to faith. God is sovereign over all. Fact one, God is sovereign over all. In verse 21, no dispatch is sent to Isaiah this time. Rather, Isaiah sends word to Hezekiah. The Lord had already spoken to him. It's a word given that we're told it's concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, though it's a word that Sennacherib is probably not going to hear. In verses 22 and 23, the Lord points out how Sennacherib has mocked God's people and therefore mocked God himself. And the mocking is specifically in the form of Sennacherib taking credit for all of his military conquests in verses 24 and 25. He speaks as if he is the one who is strong and powerful and able to subdue nations. But the Lord says in verses 26 and 27 that everything Sennacherib has done was determined and planned by God long ago and that he is the one who brought it all to pass. Sennacherib was incapable of any show of strength or military conquest apart from God's sovereign hand. God was not only sovereign in his victories, but in verses 28 and 29, we see that God is sovereign over Sennacherib's downfall. God knows every move Sennacherib makes, and he will in fact move Sennacherib like a beast, like a strong bull. You know, you can't push a strong bull, but a strong bull's got a hook in his nose. 
and like a strong bull is easily led by that hook in its nose or like a horse is effortlessly turned by the bit in its mouth, the Lord is going to turn Sennacherib around and he's gonna lead him out of Judah by the same way that he came in. This was planned long ago. Isaiah spoke of it in Isaiah 37, 7. He says there, Behold, I will put a spirit in him, in Sennacherib, so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land. That's what God did. And now God is going to bring this plan to pass. In the same way that he planned the the supernatural destruction of Assyria's army and the sad fall of its king. God planned those things as well. That's predicted in Isaiah 31, verses 8 and 9. Here's what it says there. Isaiah says, And the Assyrians shall fall by a sword, not of man. Sound familiar? Does that sound like verse 36? Shall fall by a sword, not of man, and a sword, not of man, shall devour him, and he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be put to forced labor. His rock shall pass away in terror, and his officers desert the standard in panic, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion, and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. This is what we see in the close of this chapter. The Lord brings his word to pass with the sudden destruction of the 185,000 Assyrians. And then we see how Sennacherib, the rock of Assyria, passes away in terror at the murderous hands of his own sons while he's in the temple of a false god that cannot protect him. It's a decimating fall for Assyria and for Sennacherib in particular. Here then is how this fact, this this truth of the sovereignty of God enlivens us to faith. When we see all the hordes of hell aligned against us, when we're filled with despair, even at the smallest distress, we can know that God is sovereign over even the evil and the enemies in our lives, that they could do nothing apart from his planning and him bringing these things to pass. God's rule extends over all. Now, that doesn't mean we won't be confused by what he does. That we won't pause and wonder why God is doing what he is doing. But we don't ever have to worry that things have spun out of his control. Because he is always in control. You might think about Job, whose whose wealth and family and flesh could not be touched apart from God's divine permission. Or we might look at things, we might look at the distress, the things that distress us and fill us with fear and anxiety, and we can say what Jesus said to Pilate. Pilate was a lot like Sennacherib. He assumed that his power was his own. This is what he says to Jesus when he's standing there on, on trial. Pilate says, do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? <laughs> of course, Jesus knew of his father's sovereignty over all. So in the face of crucifixion, in the face of Pilate, he says to Pilate, and he says even to his own heart, what's he say? You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. And so what do we do? We can come and we can spread out all the difficulties that come into our lives. And we can pray to the Lord like Hezekiah. And we can say to our enemies and the things that distress us, we say, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. And the one who gave you that authority is my father, and the one who gave you that authority can take it away from you whenever he wants to. God's sovereignty over even our enemies and his ordaining of the evil that happens in this world is both comforting and confounding. 
it's comforting because it assures us that his hand is, is on the thermostat, as it were. But it's confusing because we want to know why he's turning the heat up on us at all sometimes. But hold on to that question. I think that the other facts that are seen in this passage will help to answer it. Well, the first fact that emboldens us to faith is that God is sovereign over all. The second fact is that, that, that helps us respond with faith when trials come is this. Fact number two, God will not be mocked forever. God will not be mocked forever. This takes us out of our own needs and wants and desires and it aligns us with God's zeal for his own glory. As God's children, who we are and what happens to us in this world and how we respond to such things are, are tied up with the glory of God. This, this is clear in verses 22 and 23 where Isaiah reminds us that to despise God's people is to mock him. To despise God's people is to mock God. When Sennacherib disparaged Judah, he was disparaging the God of Judah. And God was not going to allow that to continue forever. Now, now related to our previous fact, we see that Sennacherib also mocked God by taking credit for the things that God had enabled him to do. And so we find that to take credit for your strength is a mocking of God. We need to be careful of that. If we take credit for our own strength, we are mocking the God who gave it to us. Jesus, of course, was speaking to his disciples when he, he told them that apart from him they could do nothing. But there's also a sense in which all people are incapable of doing anything apart from God. Beware of the pride that takes credit for your own strength. It's a mocking of God. What does all that mean? It, it means that the, the trials and the difficulties that come against God people, God's people cause God to be mocked. His people look weak and his enemies look strong. And therefore God looks weak and his enemies look strong. And while that's not a reality, we know that's not a reality, it's what appears to be true and therefore God is mocked in this world. But we can know that that mocking will not last forever. God is patient and like Judah on the wall or Jesus before Pilate, he may be silent for a little while but there will be a day when he acts and he makes it clear that his glory and strength and majesty far exceed all of those who exalted themselves above him. It will happen in large and small ways in our lives now and it will happen finally and forever at his return and at the coming of his glorious kingdom when he will be knocked, mocked no more for all eternity. The link between the, the mockery of God's people and the mockery of God and this truth that, that God will not be mocked forever leads us to a third fact. These are all sort of woven together, as it were, as a, a net to uphold us. Fact number three is that God will always bless and defend his faithful remnant. God will always bless and defend his faithful remnant. So God is sovereign over all. God will not be mocked. And God will always bless and defend his faithful remnant. From this judgment on Assyria, verse 30 turns to the blessing and the defense of the faithful who remained in Jerusalem. The blessing is seen in verses 30 through 33. Uh, Joshua pointed out this week as we were discussing it on Thursday nights that it echoes the instruction for the Israelite year of Jubilee that the people had been neglecting. But what we see is that if Judah would turn and repent and trust in the Lord, that God says he's going to provide enough food for them 
for two years without them having to work for it in any way, and then he's going to bless their sowing and reaping in the third year. So think about this. What did Rabshakeh say was going to happen? You are doomed to, you that are sitting on this wall, you're going you're gonna to drink your own urine and eat your own dung because the siege is coming on you. And what does God say if they will turn? If they will turn, God says there's not going to be a siege. There's going to be a year of jubilee. There's going to be blessing. Three years of fruitful harvest, two of which you don't even have to plant anything. That's the blessing of the Lord. Not only is their blessing assured, but so too is their defense. Their defense is, is promised in verses 33 through 35, and then it's described in 36 through 38. So both the promise and the description are staggering. They remind us of what we often forget, which is how powerful our God is and how sure his promises are, no matter how big the threats in our lives seem or how sure we are that they're going to destroy us. What stands out to me, there's there's so much in verses 33 through 35, but what stands out to me is that promise where he says, not even an arrow will be shot at the city. I just love that picture. The, The smallest weapon of war is not even going to come near Jerusalem. That's what God's salvation. That's what God's salvation looks like. That's the fullness of God's protection over His people when they turn and trust Him. Again, we see the intertwining of these facts, especially in verse 35. Look at verse 35. God says, "For I will defend this city to save it. Why? For my own sake, and for the sake of my servant David. God is sovereign. He is the one that will save the city. Right." And why will he do it? He will do it for his own sake. He'll do it for his own glory because he will not be mocked forever. And for the sake of his servant David, he will do it. God made a promise to David, a promise that a son of his line would always be on the throne. And God's preservation of his people, his his blessing and defending of them fulfills that promise that he made to David that he will not go back on. He preserves the people of God and he preserves even more fully, even more significantly, he preserves the promised seed of David. Even more so, he preserves the Messiah. He preserves Jesus, the greater David, who's going to come from the line of David, who will bless and defend his people through his life and his death and his resurrection. It's in Jesus that God's sovereign plan, his his zeal for his glory and his love for his people all come together as he saves and he rescues us from sin and death through taking our sin on himself and dying. Blessing and triumph are ours because Jesus has defeated death through his resurrection. How can we know this blessing in defense? How can we have God bless us and defend us in such a sure way? Through faith through trusting, through not fearing, but standing firm in faith and seeing the salvation and glory of the Lord in Jesus Christ. What did Hezekiah do? He prayed, and God destroyed all of his enemies. Before moving on, let's remember that this word is to a remnant. It's it's to the faithful few who still trusted the Lord in Jerusalem. Faith, faith stands firm, trusting in the Lord, but those who trust the Lord are often despised and few. Well, we are small, but our God is above all. Our hope is not in numbers, ever, but in the Lord. I was just reading the story of Gideon, 
and how God purposely shrunk his army so that he would trust, they would trust in the Lord alone. Our hope is not in numbers, it's in the Lord. And we know that he's going to bless and defend his faithful remnant, no matter how small they might be. A final fact that helps us to trust the Lord in the midst of difficulty is this. Fact number four, God responds to the prayers of his people. God responds to the prayers of his people. Verses 36 through 38 are astonishing in their description of God's justice and his judgment that are poured out on Sennacherib. But the most startling statement of this passage might be the six words that are found in the middle of verse 21. Look at verse 21. It says, Then Isaiah, the son of Amoz, sent to Ezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria. Do you know what the six words I'm thinking of are? Because you have prayed to me. Because you have prayed to me. The destruction of the Assyrian army through the death of 185,000 people in one night, the, the end of the reign of Sennacherib, this king who no one could defeat, and the deliverance of Judah from an enemy that they were so scared of found their source in the fact that Hezekiah prayed to the one true and living God. And as we've said, prayer is faith in action. And if prayer is faith in action, we can say that it was the faith of Hezekiah that delivered Judah. Yes, the strength of God, but the strength of God as it, that was also found in this trust that was expressed through a desperate prayer on behalf of the people. Now, if you're thinking, you're wondering, how does this fourth fact fit with the first one? God is sovereign over all. He does whatever he wants. God responds to the prayers of his people. A lot of people have thought about that. We could say a lot about it. I'm going to give you one well-stated word from Barry Webb that will be more than sufficient, I think, this afternoon to at least answer part of the question. And you can keep thinking about it, but I find this succinct and helpful. We must not miss this, this idea that because you have prayed, God has done these things. We must not miss this because it is part of the Bible's strong teaching about prayer. Because someone has prayed, God steps in and changes the course of history. It is a breathtaking truth. And at first sight, a worrying one. Because it appears to put humans rather than God in control. But this is an illusion. There is no conflict between God's absolute sovereignty and the power of prayer. Because quite simply, this is the way God has chosen to work. Through prayer, he draws us up into his purposes and involves us in what he is doing. What a privilege. Even the desire to pray is his gift. The power of prayer is staggering. Could you come up with a, bigger, a better example of the power of prayer than Hezekiah's prayer and the next day God destroys the Assyrian army? It's staggering. And we can trust that God will respond to the prayers of his people. Why should we have faith? Because we know that God responds to prayer like this. That kingdoms rise and fall. Why? Because someone prays. 
I think it might be helpful, though, to add just a little bit to this final truth. And, and I think this helps us, again, sort of weave all of these facts together. I think we could also say this. God responds to the prayers of his people when their goal is his glory. What kind of prayer does God respond to? God responds to the prayers of his people when their goal, the goal of your prayer, the desire, the deep underlying longing of your prayer is the glory of God. You remember Hezekiah's closing words in his prayer, verse 20? So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. The glory of God is God's chief concern. His, his sovereign acts, his blessing and defending of his people, and his silencing of the mocking all resound to his glory alone. He raises up and he brings down rulers and nations so that the earth will know that he is the only ruler on earth. He blesses and he provides for his people so that they will trust in him alone and glorify him alone. He defends his people. In verse 35 it says, Why? For his own sake and for the sake of his servant David. And when we're asking for things in prayer according to his will, it means that we too are concerned with God's glory in the world above everything else. Does that mean you don't pray for your needs? Hezekiah obviously shows us that that's not true. Does it mean we don't pray for deliverance and blessing? Of course not. It just means that when we pray for these things, that, that we pray for these things only if in receiving them, God is glorified. We pray with confidence knowing that, that God's glory and our good are not in conflict. They're not at odds with each other. God's glory doesn't always mean that we're miserable. That's not, that's not how God works because he loves us. He works for his sake and for the sake of his servant David, for both. And we pray with confidence. We know that God's glory and our good are not in conflict. And also knowing that sometimes we have to endure difficulty, but that God is working all things together for the good of his glory and for our growth in Christ-likeness. So therefore, we're always content. Whatever happens, because God is glorified. Maybe it'd be helpful to go back to Pilate. Jesus is there, and his confidence in God's sovereign power was rooted in a submission to the wider purpose of God being glorified through the salvation of sinners that could only come through the death of Jesus. And so Jesus' prayer was always for the glory of God, even if it meant his suffering. May that be true of us too, right? That our great longing would be that the earth would be filled with the glory of the Lord as we trust in him. In closing, let me just go back to the very beginning of this section in Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 36, verses 4 through 5, you remember the Rabshakeh comes and he's mocking God's people. These are his first questions to the people of Judah. This is what he says. And remember, this is the key question of the passage. On what do you rest this trust of yours? Remember that question? Here's what the Rabshakeh says. On what do you rest this trust of, of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? The narrative answers Rabshakeh's question, doesn't it? The narrative gives a response and the answer to those questions and the answer that should arise in our hearts 
whenever difficulties arise, whatever we face, we say this, we trust the Lord. <laughs> we trust the Lord alone. And yes, believe it or not, Rabshakeh, believe it or not, enemies, believe it or not, crises and difficulties that face us, relying on his word and on his truth are better strategy for war, better hope for salvation than all of your armies or anything else that you could give us. How do you know that's true? How do we know that faith is the firm foundation, that faith is something that you can stand on no matter what's coming? Because our God is sovereign over all. And our God will not be mocked forever. And our God will always bless and defend his faithful remnant. And our God lovingly and powerfully responds to the prayers of his people. Therefore, brothers and sisters, don't fear. Don't be dismayed. Don't stress out whatever comes. Rather, stand firm in faith and see the salvation and the glory of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, what rich chapters these have been for us. We've been told to trust in you and now we see that that trust in you is not wishful thinking, that trust in you is not hoping in something that's going to fall out underneath us, rather that, that trusting in you, Lord, it's, it's the best strategy for war. It's the best strategy for, for being saved. It's the best strategy for being blessed and knowing the defense that you offer us. Lord, you've shown us that most fully in Jesus, that well, we can never save ourselves that sin was piled up against us and we had no hope. But just trusting in what Christ has done brings us salvation in a way that we could never earn it on our own. So Lord, we worship you and we ask, Lord, forgive us for making faith the last resort. Fill us now with fresh faith and fresh trust so that we would stand firm and fill us, Lord, with a longing, not simply to be comfortable, not just to get what we want all the time, but rather that you would be glorified in our lives in whatever way you desire and that your glory would fill the earth. I ask all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.